Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Jim Taylor. Uh, so Jim is an internationally recognized authority on the psychology of performance. Uh, he has written 19 books, thousands of articles. He's appeared on many programs and podcasts. He's been on the Today Show, Fox and Friends. He's appeared on GCN and GTN, you know, the Global Cycling Network and Global Triathlon Network. He is a, a sports psychologist for some of the top athletes in the world, including uh, PTO athletes and other professionals. Um, he's also a, a very good triathlete. Uh, he's one of the best in the world in his age group. He earned bronze at the World Triathlon Championships in, in Abu Dhabi last year. So he, he certainly knows his, his stuff and he's been on the podcast before and he's everybody has has enjoyed listening to him. He's helped a lot of athletes and we had the the honor of having him speak uh, at our working triathlete elite camp last weekend in San Francisco. Uh, where he he ran a mental training workshop, and today we're going to talk about you know some components of of what he spoke about at the camp, including some some mind hacks for mental marginal gains and and what else whatever else pops up. And you know before we uh, kick things off, I want to say you know, everybody should wait until the end of the podcast when we reveal the uh, I would say maybe the number one hack for enhancing performance, at least in our opinion or, or, or my opinion. So, so listen to the end. Um, but Jim, welcome to the podcast. And I know you raced last weekend and I'm sure you used some of these tools and hacks to uh, to race well last weekend, right? Um, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Always fun to chat it up with a couple of people who uh, have a similar passion um, for, for triathlon and also a hunger for, for knowledge. Uh, I love sharing my ideas with you guys. And um, I, the way I put it is I've always been my first guinea pig to see some of the things that work. Um, I certainly do look at the research and we'll talk about some of the mind hacks that are very grounded in research. But as any serious athlete or coach knows, a lot of the things we figure out comes from just own, our own experience out there. And so, um, so some of my mind hacks um, are definitely around that. Um, and I guess just to kick it off, um, sort of the, my little title for today, I suppose, is Mind Hacks for Mental Marginal Gains. And um, mar marginal gains is a term that we hear a lot in cycling. And it's basically those small little gains you make from, from, from different things you do in terms of technology and fit and so on. So arrow wheels, you know, shaving your legs even amazingly enough. I, I couldn't believe this when I read it. Um, you can go get four or five watts out of just shaving your legs, um, especially I suppose if you have really hairy Neanderthal legs. Um, <laughs> and uh, arrow helmet and uh, a, a really fast um, triathlon suit, things like that. And so this got me thinking about what are some marginal gains that we can do with, with the mind? And because the fact is, is that that all these marginal gains related, let's say, bikes, bike equipment is um, they are very small. But if you can pick up a couple of watts times five different areas, that gets to be substantial. And, and it's funny, guys, because I'm often asked, like, how much faster can can you make me go by doing mental training? And and I'll say, well, what do you think? And can you make me 20 percent faster? And if you do the math. Like, I think I'm pretty good at what I do, but I'm not. That good. <laughs> and but 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 certainly if you're highly competitive and certainly at the pro level, you know, a, a couple of seconds. I mean, I've lost races. I, I, I lost one race last year um, by point one, four seconds. Mm -hmm. So so it's like, you know, where could I pick that up? And another one by six seconds, because I blew my transition at the at the world. Um, I, I could have gotten second instead of third. Um, and so. All these little things, if you're competitive, you want to get everything out of you and go as fast as you can, then all these little things can make a huge difference. So so that's that's where I start off. Yeah. And so certainly you can go faster, but I also think it's good. It's enjoyable having control over your mind and the mental side of things. And I certainly think that even beyond just having control of your mind while racing, we're also sort of honing our mental outlook or mindset for for life when 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 we're training. So you know, I, I think that this even spreads the benefits of getting control over over your mind or, or being aware of it as as a tool for racing. It, it, it also leaches over into life and will make you a more effective 
you know, person at work or in family life too. So this stuff is important. <laughs> yeah, um, I totally agree with you, Conrad. And, and what I often say is that this isn't triathlon psychology. It's not sports psychology. It's life. And everything that you use in terms of getting the most out of your triathlon, it's really about performance and becoming the best version of yourself. So all the tools that I talk about can be applied to school, to education, um, to um, to career, to relationships, to everything. So that's, I think it's a really important point to make. This is not just about how you can go faster on the, in the swim, bike, and run. That's for sure. For sure. And, you know, I know that when you, when you spoke at our camp, you know, you could basically hear a pin drop. Everybody was... Uh, listening and because these they can make tangible differences in 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 race time and and also enjoyment of training and and you know I know so these hacks you know I think we think of hacks I know that you mentioned that 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 isn't a word that you've always liked to use because I think some people might associate them with shortcuts or or something but but really the hack, I mean, I like to think of it as, you know, almost hacking into your mind, viewing your mind as a computer or an operating system. And, you know, you're using the the, the sort of, I guess, the smart part of your brain rather than the reptilian part to uh, just enhance performance or, or sort of almost trick your brain into performing better uh, in, in training and racing. So, I mean, how, how do you think about, you know, these, these mental hacks, uh, in, in the toolbox? Yeah. Well, f fundamentally they're really tools you can use because really what this process is about of, of being the best triathlete you can be is getting your body to obey your mind because you know, you refer to the reptilian brain. And I'm a big believer that even though we, we have these, this highly evolved part of our brain, the cerebral cortex and our prefrontal cortex, we still react to the world very much like we did when we were in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. And I use this metaphor all the time with the athletes I work with. And that, that, that our body through evolution has learned that to avoid pain, to avoid discomfort. Because on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, if we felt pain, what was likely to follow was death. So, so discom physical discomfort and pain is this early warning system against that. The problem, guys, is that what worked then doesn't work now because a part of, of becoming the best triathlete we can be is pushing our physical limits, feeling pain, and getting through it. And so, so being in a situation where we can, can, can resist that those billions of years of evolution is really, really important. And what it involves is making sure your mind takes control of your body, not the other way around. Because the body has a tremendous capacity to let us know when to stop. And it, and it starts out as a whisper, and it starts getting louder and louder until it's screaming at you. And we've all experienced that, that moment when it is screaming at us. But there's been a lot of research that shows that, that when we think there's nothing left, there is fuel in the tank. So when, when, our, when we don't think we can go harder, we think it's because our muscles have failed. But this, that's rarely the case. And so if we can use our mind, again, whether you want to call them mind hacks or tools or skills, the key is to be able to leverage these in those moments when our body starts to say, no, come on, let's stop because, because we're going to die. Because again, the mind doesn't know the difference between the pain we feel now on an, on an indoor bike uh, workout and being in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, faced with a rival tribesman with a really big club. It's it's funny because this is it makes me think of uh, a so Nate Bargatze he is he's a comedian and he's from Old Hickory Tennessee and he uh, just released a a comedy special a couple of weeks ago it's it's on Netflix he's so the first time I saw him was in a little sort of weird comedy club in in Nashville and he he's grown and sometimes comedians give off you know great nuggets of wisdom. And I had to transcribe one thing he said uh, because it's startlingly relevant. And, you know, he said, so so one part of your brain is smart and the other part is dumb. You can trick your own brain. That's how dumb the dumb part is. It's in the same head. Th that's embarrassing. It's like you don't hear this going on, dude. If you're in a bad mood, they tell you to fake smile and your dumb part will think it's a good day. I mean, you don't hear the planning going on. You're part of the planning. 
And, you know, that's a lighthearted perspective, but it, it almost yeah. makes it seem more doable to get control over, over this reptilian part of your brain when you frame it like this. We don't have to be afraid of, you know, our, our emotions or, or lapses and positive thinking uh, infecting our race when we can have faith that, you know, our smart part of the brain or our deliberate part <laughs> is can can control the the dumber part as he calls it and it's it's funny but i think it's there's some wisdom in there without a doubt without a doubt so you guys want to jump in now what do you think yeah yeah let's oh, do it great so let's start off first with a little bit of a of an attitudinal hack that prepares you for a difficult workout or a difficult race because the the fact is triathlon training or racing is hard there's a lot of adversities, a lot of challenges, environmental, um, weather, terrain, course, all nutrition, um, equipment, as well as internal adversity, you know, negative thoughts, anxiety, distractions, all those things. And so the, my first mind hack is that there's this continuum of love to hate when it comes to a workout or a race. And so you can love it, you can hate it, or maybe somewhere in between. So if you've got a really hard workout, there are very few people I know who actually love it. And I've, I know a couple who they just actually love to suffer. But for most of us normal people, um, that's not going to happen. Unfortunately, what often happens to many athletes um, is that they go to the far end of this continuum of hate. And if you hate it, then your body's going to take over and you're going to e go easy or you're going to not do it at all or quit too early. So, so love is, for, is not an option for most people and hate is not going to work. What's the middle ground? And for me, that's just acceptance because just accepting, okay, this is going to be hard, but I've got some goals that I want to achieve. And to achieve those goals, I need to do this work. So the key here is just recognizing that I'm not going to love it because it's nothing to love. And if I hate it, then psychologically, emotionally, physiologically, physiologically, everything turns against you. So just go, accept it. It's like, okay, this is going to be hard. And that creates sort of a neutral mind state and a neutral emotional state and a neutral physiological state that be better prepares you for what's coming up. And so simple acceptance, and it's sort of a, a Buddhist thing going on there, the Zen thing, and I'm not particularly Buddhist, but, um, but, but it's very much along those lines is that you simply accept what is, and it's going to be hard. Okay, it's going to be hard. So let's do it now. So, so simply embracing, just knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. and telling your mind that is, is the, the cue that's going to help with that. Right. So simply by accepting it and, and not trying to resist it and not trying, trying to embrace it, that makes it more possible for your mind to just to accept it, I guess, and to, and to, and to see that this is just part of the deal. And, and, and it also helps you focus on, on why you're doing it. So it's going to be hard. Yeah, but I'm doing this for a reason and I know I'll feel good after. So that, that's a good way to start off. Um, a, couple of, um, a couple of really good ones has to do with smiling. And we might have talked about this at some point, maybe in a, in a, in a distant um, podcast, but it ties in with what this comedian was talking about. That smiling in two ways has a very powerful effect on us, psychologically, emotionally, physiologically. And there's been a ton of really interesting research on this that where they would have people, um, they'd break their mood, then they'd force them to smile. And the way they do it is if you take a, a pen and put it between your teeth, it forces you to smile. And then they had, um, they rated their mood again and they they got happier. And, and so there's been in, some interesting explanation for why this is, two explanations. One is as we grow up, we become conditioned that when we smile, it means we're happy, things are good. But also the really powerful stuff is the neuro the neurochemical changes. So when you smile, it releases endorphins, our body's natural uh, um, painkillers, um, serotonin and dopamine, which are which are helpful for dealing with stress. And so you're actually changing your 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 neurochemistry when you smile, and you don't have to be like love and life. Although there is a difference between what's called a Duchenne smile, which is a, our nat a natural smile, and a forced smile. But even with a small forced smile it can work. But ideally, if you can come up with a real reason to smile, which is hard to do if you're on a hard, doing a hard workout and you're in pain, it's hard to be feeling happy. Um, but nonetheless, it's possible. 
And so simply building, using, using smiling as a tool in your workouts. So, and, and, and ultimately in your racing. So I, I use this all the time when things get difficult. Like yesterday, I had a hard run, uh, uh, running interval workout. And so usually the, the last, the last 15, 20 seconds of, of like a, of a two minute all out sprint, it's really hard. And so I force myself to smile and does all the pain go away? No, I'm not that good. But what does it take some of the edge off? Does it reduce the perceived exertion a little bit? Yes. And so both, both from a conditioning perspective and a, uh, a neurochemical perspective. So simply adding smiling consistently to, to your training. And so for me, it's usually, I'll usually start smiling um, the, the last part of a, of a hard interval. And, and I don't, I don't smile the whole time, but just maybe for 10 or 15 seconds. And what's fascinating about it is when you try it, it's hard. Like your body doesn't want to smile because there's nothing to smile about. But if, again, the mind takes over the body, you force it to smile. And then the, as the comedian says, the dumb part goes, oh, things must be okay then. And another really important thing about that is that, again, our bodies don't know the difference. They don't know you're not going to die. And so, and, and you've, the body does feel like it's losing control. And so when you smile, it's letting your body know that we're still in control. Everything's okay. You're not going to die. You can keep pushing. This, it also makes me think about sort of the value of group training. And there's a lot of smiling going on when you're with others because, well, that's part of socializing. But, you know, I'm thinking about our track workout yesterday where, you know, we're, we're deep in the middle of the set and everybody's starting to feel it. Um, and maybe the wind is crazy on the backstretch. But, you know, it, when we run into, you know, around the curve into the backstretch and we're hitting the wind, it's just if somebody like screams and goes, woo, or, or something, it's just it alleviates some of the potential stress that certain athletes might might create. So, you know, you, you can also, I think, harness this you know, yourself when smiling, but also feeding off of everybody else. And I think it's probably a similar similar outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so smiling is not only th those things individually, but it's also a contagion. Like if you're around people who are smiling, it's hard not to smile. And this is a slightly different topic, but it's a little bit of a hack, I suppose, is that is that fun is a mental tool. If you're having fun, it's generating positive emotions. It's generating positive um, uh, psychology and as well as positive physiology. So it, that those things can also resist the unpleasant physical and emotional feelings you feel during a hard workout. So in a group setting, it's unbelievable. And, and what's nice about it is that you don't have to rely on yourself to generate it. It's like if other people are having a good time, joking and laughing and smiling, it's hard not to, to feel that way as well, which has that benefit. So it can be very much of a, of a sort of a, a club culture or a training group culture that that creates that good environment that affects us, again, psychologically, emotionally, and physically, for sure. Now, another aspect of smiling is this. Some really interesting research done in human performance labs, they've had people doing um, time trialing on, a, on, a, on an indoor bike, and they will flash a smiley face at a subliminal level, meaning they can't see it consciously. They, they don't know it's there. But what they find is that when, when these researchers flash a smiley face at a subliminal level on a regular basis, cyclists can go farther and faster than with no face at all or frowny faces. So what I've done is I printed out a smiley face and I've taped it to my wall above my TV where I do my, my Zwift workouts. And so I'm constantly looking at it. So it, it, this isn't subliminal. I, I know it's there, but I'm not looking at it all the time, but it's in my field of vision. So I'm processing it. So this is sort of an, another, this is an external hack and it's very tangible where it's like, it's right there. And, you know, unfortunately it's hard to do if, if you're running, I suppose you could like get a, a smiley face tattoo or something like that. Um, and in the pool, I was talking, I'm, in, I'm involved with form um, swim goggles, the smart goggles. And I, I'm talking to them about being able to put um, uh, keywords or a, a little smiley faces on the heads up display. So we'll see if that ever comes up. But the point is, at least with your indoor workouts, you're constantly seeing that message of smiley face. And that goes into your brain. And, and it, even if you see it all the time, it's still unconscious. It's not like I'm sitting there going like, oh, there's a smiley face. So I'm going to smile and feel good. It's just like seeing it triggers 
those those changes in the body, just like with the research where it's subliminal, where, you, where again, the cyclists don't even know it's there and yet it impacts them. This is kind of a joke, but I always tell athletes if they're doing mile repeats, they should do smile repeats as well. Um, that way, like Conrad mentioned, if you're in a group session, you can get out there and smile with each other, um, especially if there's a, a photographer, because then you're reminded to smile. I tell everyone, even during a race, if you know what the photographers are or you see them, it's a good opportunity to uh, put your best face on. <laughs> and sure. Derek, Derek walks the walk on this front. <laughs> It's it's mildly infuriating seeing how good his uh, race day photos are. <laughs> it's like he scouts out where the cameras are and gets ready to smile at them. And he runs faster than pretty much anyone else on the, out there. So clearly it works. Very good. Very good. So let's move away from smiling now talk about words, the power of words. So I'm a word guy. You, you indicated I've written a bunch of books. I write constantly. It's my passion. And I'm a believer that words are powerful things, that words aren't just semantic. Like often we'll say, oh, it's just a semantic difference. I don't believe it. Words have meaning. They're, they're how we filter the world in many ways and how we perceive the world and how we re respond to the world. So the world, we, the words we use have a really big impact on us psychologically, emotionally, and physiologically. And so again, tons of research that's found that what you say to yourself in training or in races affects how fast you go. Now, the challenge is this that when you're hurting in a race or during a workout, it's very hard to step back from that and go, okay, I'm hurting. What could I, what should I do here? What are some things I can say to myself? What's some good self-talk? You're just so wrapped up in the pain. And, and again, evolutionarily, pain makes sure you hear it because it was necessary that we heard it on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. So um, it's really important beforehand to develop some, some self-talk, some statements, and use them on a regular basis. So self-talk for me, like in the pool, um, um, keep pushing and finish strong. And in, in my, my run intervals, in all my intervals, it's really about constantly telling myself, let's finish strong, let's finish strong, let's keep it going. So those are always in my, in my, in my mental toolkit that I can pull out when I need to. Because the body's going to start affecting the mind saying, no, let's go negative here because that'll, that'll, that'll help us slow down. And that's what, that's what the body wants. So you need to turn that around and have this little arsenal of, of, um, of self-talk that will resist that. That it's basically commanding the body. No, finish strong. Come on, keep it going. This is why we're doing this. So I encourage triathletes to, to prepare a short list of some key phrases that they can practice. And again, just like conditioning, just like physical training, just like technical work in the pool, the only way you get better is with practice, with repetition, with consistency. Mental training is the exact same way. And using these mind hacks, exact same way. So the self-talk is critical. The second part of that is what I call power words. So when you start to hurt in a workout or a race, you start to lose control because your body is literally losing control and your mind is losing control of your body. So it's important to be able to have a way to create a sense of control and a sense of power. So, so having some words, just single words that are short and powerful, and it might be strong, it might be fast, it might be tough, it might be charged, whatever it is. Having some of those power words available to you as well is really great. And, and I encourage athletes, for example, write it on your hand, write it on your bike, get a piece of tape and put it on your on your um. Your your arrow bars, or if you draft legal on on the top of your uh, your uh, your drops, and so by having that, it's like you see it, and it's right there, and then so you don't have to put any effort in this. You don't have to put any effort into figuring out what do I say. It's like it's right there. It's the top. It's it's right in my toolkit. I can start. I can start repeating it, and that does a couple things. It reminds you of what you want to accomplish that it gives you a, a, a very directive like charge. It also acts as a distraction by taking your mind off the pain and it affects your physiology and your emotions because when you say things like charge, finish strong, that has a very strong emotional impact. And so you can access these and it can get you to keep going. And you know, th this makes me think of, one thing I don't think 
is good. And I know you mentioned when you spoke to our elite athletes, this, like the concept of disassociating, like you don't want to listen to podcasts. You don't want during key workouts, particularly you want to be engaged and focused and look inward. And I know that the best athletes in the world, they actually look, look inward. They don't try to disassociate. And, you know, what, what you're talking about is, is not disassociating. It's almost like enhancing the <laughs> the inward focus in a way. Absolutely. And because it's easy. There are a lot of ways we can distract ourselves these days with technology. And a lot of swimmers will have the, the, um, the uh, bone conductance headphones in the pool. And I've one Ironman triathlete who um, listens to podcasts on his, on his runs and on bikes. And I told him not to, because it's a distraction. And I, I noticed myself, like if I, if I'm not doing too hard a workout, uh, if I'm doing an easy workout, I'll watch like GCN or GTN or triathlon videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I've tried that with quality workouts, meaning interval workouts, and it just doesn't work because, it, because I'm paying attention to what's being said. And all of a sudden my power starts dropping. So to get the most out of your training, you need to totally associate. You need to watch that power number. If you're, if you have a power meter, you have to watch your heart rate, your pace, whatever you're using as, as a metric. And so um, anything like podcasts, talking, things like that, that's total distraction. Um, music is a totally different thing because it uses a different part of the brain. Um, music um, is accessed by the emotional part of the brain. And also, as we well know, music has a tremendous effect on us physiologically, psychologically, and emotionally. So I don't know a, a pro triathlete who doesn't have playlists that they use to keep them fired up. And so like, like I'm an ACDC Def Leppard kind of guy. And, and so I'm just, when I'm doing my hard workouts, I've got that cranked and, and it, 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 it has that positive effect on me while I'm still able to focus on my numbers, making sure I, I keep that focus because the fact is when it gets hard, your body doesn't want to focus on it because if you focus, if you don't focus on it, you'll slow down, which is what your body wants to have happen. So that's why it's so important to be constantly focused every moment on the quality workout you're trying to do. Because if you don't, within seconds, your body's gonna is gonna take over and start slowing down. I have a question about these, you know, these words you mentioned. If we're if we have the self-talk, we're talk, we're giving ourselves these words. What if there's like a coach or someone on the sideline that is also yelling the words. Is that, does that the same effect? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, more cool research related to this, that what they did, what the researchers did was they took two groups. One had them do um, I statements. Like I've got this, I can do this. I'm going to charge. Then they had you statements. Like you can do this. You got this. And, and, and when I asked most athletes, what they, which they thought was more powerful first I or you, they said I, because of course, then you're talking about yourself. But what the research showed very counterintuitively, that you statements were more effective at increasing motivation, increasing confidence and increasing effort. And the reason is that that if you're saying it like, like I can do this, well, you might not necessarily believe it. But if it's coming from the outside, and I'm doing air quotes um, because you can't see me um, um, on the podcast, is um, it's almost like coming from somebody else. And this is getting to the second part of your comment, Derek, that that when you hear that kind of feedback, whether it's power, you know, ask your ask your the athletes you work with um, what their power words are or what their self-talk is and you give it to them. And, and you're, you're, of course, going to say, you know, you can you can finish strong. And so they can say that to themselves. You can finish strong because when things are hard, they're going to believe it coming from somebody else. And even if they're saying it, when you say you, it's sort of coming from somebody else. And the power of the coach is huge because a lot of times an athlete doesn't believe they can they can maintain that pace or or hit the numbers. But if 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 you say you you can do this, in a way you're lending them some of your confidence, and so they go, "Gosh, if my coach thinks I can do it. Well, maybe I can. So I'm going to give it a go." And then hopefully they hit their numbers and they go, "Wow!" And they just internalized that confidence that you lent them and their confidence goes up. So next time, maybe they don't need it as much or you, you kick it up a notch, the, the numbers not up a notch and they need another little borrow helping of, of confidence from you. So, so, so this would be a great exercise for you, for coaches to, um, to be able to know what the, the self-talk, the power words 
that your athletes use and then maybe have them on your phone or a piece of paper and, and being able to refer to those. And when they're in a track workout or whatever you're doing with them to be able to give them those, it's like, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I think we have some, some homework for working triathletes this week now to figure out the, uh, the power words that, that get them going. Um, and kind of looping back to this concept of distracting oneself and it is essential to kind of train like like you're going to race and there's no music in in racing you're not allowed to listen to unless you're doing a rock and roll or something where there's no you you can't disassociate with a podcast you don't want to be disassociating with with a podcast um and it is really important especially during key workouts to be engaged and and practice this this positive self-talk because you can't expect to just tap into this on race day um you gotta embed it into your routine and and constantly think and i think hone the the arsenal of power words you have and 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 all that you can't expect to just miraculously execute well on race day without practicing <laughs> what you're gonna do right without a doubt conrad and so so far we've been focused we focus on the smiling aspect the smiling and the smiling face the self-talk the power words another really powerful tool that that we rarely think about as a, as a tool um or a hack is breathing and the reason why we don't think about breathing as a tool is because we don't have to think about it we just breathe i mean can you imagine if we had to think about breathing then then we'd pay a lot of attention to it and you might be thinking well breathing is a physical thing well, yes, it's a physical thing, but it also has tremendous psychological and emotional impact as well. And, and let's start with the physical side. Um, when you are, well, they're very, they're, think about all the different physiological activity in our body, heart rate, blood flow, respiration, um, adrenaline, um, other, other hormones. We don't have direct control over most of those. So we can't just tell our heart to slow down. We can't just tell our blood flow to increase. We can't just tell our adrenal glands not to spurt out adrenaline. The only physiological activity that we can directly control is our breathing. But by controlling our breathing, we can control those other indirect physiological components. So breathing also has a lot of psychological impact because what happens when we're either training hard or racing hard is we feel like we're losing control of our body and and lack of control is one thing we humans do not like we're wired through evolution not to like being out of control because in the serengeti 250,000 years ago if we were out of control we were likely going to die next so we do everything we can to regain control and breathing is one way to do that and i'm sure you guys experienced this you you're doing a set of i don't know 16 by by 100 intervals like super hard and I don't know about you, but but um, at the end of each in, in, interval, each um, uh, lap um, um, or each time workout, whatever, is that um, like I'm gasping for breath. And the, the challenge there is that it, that gasping for breath is sending a message to your body that we're going to die. Even though, of course, you're not going to die. And so you can send a very powerful message to your body by controlling your breathing. And a couple of some benefits here. First of all, you actually recover more quickly. Even if you're gasping for breath, you can control your breathing. So even if you go like, <laughs> so by controlling your breathing, you get more oxygen into your system. You slow your heart rate. You reduce the amount of adrenaline in your system and you recover more quickly. So you're better, better ready for the next interval. Also, it sends that message to your body that, okay, body, I know you think we're, we're about to die here, but we're not. I've got it under control. Look, take a look. I'm controlling our breathing. We're fine. And then your body's not freaking out like it thinks it's going to die. And it's more likely to want to continue to push. So, and, and breathing also, another psychological benefit is, is focus. And this is a total meditation thing where, where, you know, there might be a lot of stuff going around you, let's say before the start of a big race and you're kind of nervous and everybody's kind of like a lot of energy going around and just simply taking deep breaths. Where's your focus come back to you. 
your body settles down, your mind settles down. Because with so many, so many triathletes, especially at the longer distances, if you're nervous at the start, you're burning fuel. And that's a waste of fuel. So the more you can settle yourself down, bring yourself into yourself, like, okay, how, how do I, how am I going to do this, do the start, settle into good rhythm? Because again, a common thing is, um, you know, the first hundred yards of the swim, people are like sprinting all out. And then they're like out of gas or they're gasping for breath. So they have to slow down and keeping the focus in keeping settled down. It enables you to stay within yourself and people are just charging by you. It doesn't matter where somebody is after the first hundred yards. It's where somebody at the, out of the, out of the water, out of the bike, finish line. So breathing is that great tool for settling yourself down, centering yourself physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, psychologically, and, and just being at a place where now I can move forward. I'm in control. I'm ready to go. It, it This reminds me of a study that was published either February or January of this year from uh, Huberman Lab at Stanford. You know, Andrew Huberman, he's a noted, notable podcast host now. I think he's most known for that. And so his lab, you know, he's also a neuroscientist and also actually runs a lab. They, they focused on the best breathing strategy for, you know, actually lowering heart rate and achieving a calm state. And, and they kind of compared it against mindful meditation. And they had, I think, different breathing strategies like box breathing and, and, and uh, other breathing methods. But the one that won was the double inhale, sigh, exhale. So you just breathe, like you breathe almost a full breath, and then you basically take another breath on top of that to really fill those lungs. Um, and then you exhale uh, and, and kind of sigh. So it's like, and uh, you know, you do that for a few minutes and it will calm you down. Um, so even being more deliberate with the the process of of the breath might maybe it, I guess there's evidence that it could even help. Uh, yeah, get an additional certainly, benefit. Certainly, there are very specific types of breathing. An another interesting benefit: use the word "settle." So um, when I take a deep breath, you uh, you guys can see me, but the podcast uh, listeners won't be able to see me. But as I inhale a big deep breath, my shoulders go up, and then when I when I exhale, my shoulders go down. I settle. I get more grounded. And what often happens, especially in the run, as you get tired, it's not that you, your cadence slows down necessarily, but your center of gravity rises because you start tightening up and your stride shortens. So it might only shorten out of three, four inches per stride, but over the course of miles, that's exponential. And so during the course of the run, for example, focusing on, on your breathing and that idea of exhaling and settling yourself down. Connecting with the ground, because the way you connect with the ground then can um, generate more power off the ground. And so this is just a very practical thing, physiological thing, running thing that helps you to be able to um, run, maintain pace for longer. Because very often for many people, it's not a matter of speeding up or, or, or even maintaining. It's like slowing the deterioration of your pace those last couple of miles, especially obviously in a, in a 70.3 or an Ironman. So there's another great tool for breathing as well. So just this idea of taking breathing and thinking about the different places in your workouts where you can use it either during recovery or during hard, those hard workouts when it's your, you, when you're in pain and taking control of your breathing. And that again, has these, these diverse uh, positive influences. One of the most important, I think, times to really focus on breathing is when you hop into the water and, and that water is really cold. Last weekend, the crew, we we swam at Aquatic Park in the Bay in San Francisco, and the water temps were, were actually under 50 degrees. Uh, so when your face hits that water, that mammalian reflex kicks in, you know, your body wants to hold on to that breath and, you know, you're blood vessels, they, they constrict. So you're getting less oxygen to the, uh, uh, the working muscles and really focusing on exhaling, I think goes a long way. And cause sometimes that panicky feeling you were talking about before that is often caused by CO2 buildup, not necessarily lack of oxygen, but it's both when everything constricts. 
So really focusing on being calm at the beginning of any open water swim is essential. And one way to really focus on that is the exhale. Cause I think the exhale is, is probably the most important part of that breath when it comes to just relaxing. Yeah. And, and, um, you're right in terms of the CO2 buildup and, um, nobody likes that cold water. And I was there with you, of course. And so, um, and I've swum in the Bay a lot, um, over the years and there's never any joy that's for sure. Um, and it's always a shock, but, but simply anticipating that it's going to be cold. Um, that takes some of the edge off it. And that breathing that first five minutes is really essential because again, evolutionarily, when the body feels threatened, it, it tightens up and you hold your breath. And again, that worked on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. Doesn't work in 49 degree water, San Francisco Bay. Um, where are we? March 2023. And so just another really great place where you can use your breathing to help you adjust to, 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 to those kind of changes. Because many of us do have to swim and race and train in really cold water. And, and it's interesting as well in terms of the panic. So I, I work with a lot of triathletes who over the years, who, especially recently, for some reason, who've had panic attacks. And it's usually, it's usually in cold water. And it's usually in situations where they feel out of control. And, and, and again, reptilian brain, when you feel out of control in the water, there's a good chance you're going to die. Now, not real, not realistically, but that's the, that's the sort of primitive perception. So simply taking control of your breathing from when you, when you walk into the water or run into the water and you make that first dive in and then keeping that breathing going, gives you a sense of control and sends that message like, okay, this is really cold, but I'm choosing to do this and we're going to be okay. And you also, again, have to practice this stuff. I, I thinking about last year, Indian Wells, it, the water was extremely cold. Uh, you know, it's December, it's always cold. And a lot of athletes were panicking, like you were talking about. And it's, again, you can't expect to just be okay on race day. Um, yeah, you want to rehearse everything. And swimming in cold water is an example of something that y you definitely should do if you're going to swim in cold water during a race for sure for sure so a couple of more things that i want to share and one is this is less i don't know if this is hack so much and maybe perception i don't know exactly what to call it but i got this from one of my top pto guys and and he came from a swimming background and he talks about when he when he's doing a swim workout and he's and this applies to the others to bike and run as well that when he's struggling he he and maybe he's not hitting his numbers then he starts trying to force it he starts to he, he's it's like he, he said i try to swim faster and swimming is the kind of sport and I, I, I do believe this applies to biking and running as well that you can't force it you can't try to go faster because what again you guys can see me but as i say that i try to go faster my body naturally tightens up it's like i'm trying so hard here and you can't swim bike or run well when your body's tight and so he talked about he talks about flow so he said he was just last week, um, he just got back from Drone. He was training there for, for a couple of months. And and he um, was saying how he was having this workout where he, he was just, he just it wasn't feeling good and he was fighting it. And and he just realized that I can't fight the water. And so he just relaxed and started flowing through it. And and he says he has to do this a lot, even though, again, he's, he, he grew up as, as, a, as a swimmer where where anytime he felt like he was forcing it, like trying to work against the water, it didn't work. And so he, he actually talks about building a relationship with the water and working with the water and, and, and flowing through the water. And so in this one particular workout, he said, I just, I just, I just relaxed, took a lot of deep breaths, and all of a sudden I'm going seconds faster per hundred. And and that idea of of trying to force it, trying to try, no. It's about often about relaxing, flowing with it, and in a letting that rhythm to create the speed that you want. And so, just that idea: flow, not force. That's my little key phrase for that: flow, not force. And 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 what that does is it relaxes the body. It, it sort of gets the mind to just let go of of like trying to control things. Because this is probably a topic for another another podcast. But but we triathletes. As a general rule, I would say I have a high need for control. And, and that has benefits because it makes sure we're organized and we're structured and we have our workouts and we do our give really good efforts. 
But ultimately on race day, it's about letting go of control and just letting our body do what it knows how to do. So our body knows how to swim fast, assuming it knows how to swim fast uh, to varying degrees. It knows how to run. It knows how to bike. It knows how to do transitions. And a little side note, you know, I, I work with athletes a lot. I just wrote a published an article um, titled something like there are more than two transitions in a triathlon. And, and I, I go into detail about that. There's a T0 and a T3 at the beginning and at the end. And, and all these things are about tr trying to control things. And, and the, the goal is like, for example, with transition is not to control it at all, not to think about it at all. Just you, you got it down. You just go through it. You just do it. There's no thinking. And, you know, stripping off the wetsuit and having done that a lot of times, you know, putting on the bike helmet, um, grabbing your bike, whatever you're going to do in T1. And then of course, what you do in T2. And so just get into the flow of a race rather than trying to force the race. This, this is interesting because it is, it kind of makes me think about how the best athletes in the world, you know, they, it is important to kind of control every detail. You have to be detail oriented. You can't overlook things. And, but at a certain point, you also kind of have the agility to adapt. And, you know, I'm thinking about maybe in races and maybe it's related to expectations. If you have expectations or even during a workout, it's like, well, you know, the power target is is this, but you know, if one isn't feeling it on that day, you know, sometimes you need to be agile and and alter your 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 approach. And sometimes it's about you know maybe focusing on RPE. If the prescription is sweet spot and the range is you know eighty five percent to ninety two percent of FTP or critical power, well, okay, maybe. Today, you're not feeling it. RPE is really high. You're hurting. It's okay. Th that zone exists for a reason. You know, hit the, you know, 88% instead of the 92%. Um, but in, in races, it's certainly important, I think, to have agility and to not tighten up like like you were talking about. Um, but I love this this concept of flow and relaxing, especially in the swim. The swim is is an enigma, but, uh, you know, it's it's everything. Without a doubt. And and I, I totally agree that there's a place for control. So you control, you make sure you've got all your equipment lined up. You make sure you've got your, you control your nutrition, you control your warm up, your, your pre-race routine, your sleep, who you hang out with, all these things. But then when it comes to race time, yes, you know, this is, an, this is a question I'm asked a lot is, do I follow my data on race day? And, and certainly with the pros that I work with, for me, data is to help you figure out how it feels. Because on race day, you, you can't always hit your numbers. And, and sometimes you feel you're, you're having a good day and you, you can exceed your numbers. So to stay on them is not a, is not a good thing. And then there are the days where you're not there and, and you can't hit them. And so, so it's really a matter of using data to, to really increase your, your ability to feel and know what works for you. Because certainly the, the, the top pros, they're not checking their watch every five minutes. And, and if they are, it's not to say, it's not for them to go, okay, I need to react to those numbers. Mm -hmm. It's just like, this is where I'm at. And, and, and I know for for myself out on the run, you know, the, the third part of the race, I'm just going by how I feel. And I'm, I check my watch. I want to see what pace I'm doing. Cause I know what I'm capable of, but fundamentally it's just like, how am I feeling? And I'm feeling good. Okay. I'm going to charge. And I'm not feeling as great. Well, I might have to back off a little bit, but but it's really about trusting the preparation, trusting the numbers you've used, and then on the day, just going with the flow and going with the feeling. And that's basically another reason to not disassociate and listen to podcasts during key intervals because you have to learn how it feels. Like, what does sweet spot feel like? What does race race pace feel like? This is. I think this is incredibly important. I think this is one of the most important things to teach athletes. But I, I love what you said, how the you know the data teaches you how to feel. It's not not the reverse there. So right, and so so you know, I mean, so data has tremendous value. But essentially, I just I was just interviewed yesterday by a, a Brit who writes for Runners World. Apparently, the, at least over there, there's this a bit of rebellion against data, and so there, there's like tech free running now. And, and realistically, um, is that the way to get faster, be the fastest you can be? Probably not. 
because, techno because technology offers us so much valuable, useful information. But again, t data is, is, is a means to an end. And the end is for you to be able to go as fast as you can and just feel your experience. Because that's also where the joy is too. Because ultimately we, 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 we do triathlons not because of, of our rational brain or because what the data says. We do it because we love the feeling of pushing ourselves, of challenging ourselves, of, of seeing what we're capable of. And so, so it's, it's like, I'm a total tech geek, but I, I have to always kind of go back to, I, it's so sort of funny thing. So years ago, um, you know, I've always run, um, been a runner, um, but never competitively. I always did training for, for my sport when I was young. And then, um, and I always would just go out to these huge runs in the mountains and just love being in nature. And then I got talked into um, doing a 5k, like a fundraising 5k when I was living in Colorado, when I was a young adult and, um, and I knew what was going to happen. And I ran it and I was pretty fast. And I go, I wonder if I can run faster. And so then I was hooked. And since then, I, you know, I, I, was, I, I was doing tons of running races and marathons. And then I transitioned into triathlon. But, but getting back to the purity of the experience, you know, going out for a bike ride. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing about indoor training is that it's sort of artificial. Whereas just being out in nature and you guys did this epic ride at your camp, um, which, my favorite ride in the world, um, Alpine Dam Seven Sisters, this gorgeous, um, tough, tough ride with a lot of climbing. That's what it's about, that feeling. And, and it's, we, we forget about that sometimes of just like being within ourselves and enjoying the experience. And it's all about the numbers and generating the power and doing the targets and so on. Um, but, but again, means to an end. Ironically, yesterday I, you know, met up at the track with a couple athletes, and I forgot my watch. And when I when I got there, I thought, do I go back home and get my watch, or do I just stay here because I'll be late if I if I go back? But I ended up doing a workout completely on feel. I know the intervals I did, but that's it. I don't know anything else other than how I felt in the distance of the intervals I did. Right. Yeah. Great example. And and I'll bet you were fast too, because you're experienced and you. And you'd know, uh, you know what it feels like. We'll never know. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so two last things I guess I would like to share. And I'm going to save the, the, my secret sauce for the very, very end. And so um, a really important thing at the end of a workout, celebrate the victories. So I often hear athletes in different sports say to me when they've lost confidence, they'll say, I just need to have a really good race to get my confidence back. But they have it all wrong. Because you're never going to have a really good race unless you have confidence. Because you might have all the ability to run a certain pace, to swim, bike a certain pace. But if you don't believe in that ability, you're not going to use that ability. So, uh, a key, uh, of course, the obvious benefit of, of workouts is gaining fit, physical fitness. But another really powerful benefit is gaining mental fitness. And the expression I use is putting money in the bank. So th think of confidence, think of your mental preparation as, as a bank account. The goal is to make as many deposits as you can and as big as you can. So on race day, you cash out. You write a really big check or you these days, you, you know, you, you to put your uh, debit card in the ATM um, and, and, and pay it out. And it's important then after a workout to recognize, consciously recognize that little victory. Because if you take all those little victories, what do they add up to? The big victory, meaning not necessarily winning, but, but achieving your personal best in a race or, or what have you. And so, so taking five seconds after workout, and this is a great team thing, by the way, as well for coaches. Let's just celebrate this moment. Let's think about the hard work you put in, the gains you made. And it might have been gains in time, but of course, every day you're not going to make gains. But gains in the, the journey toward your goals. And of course, the journey is not, is not always linear. In fact, it's very nonlinear. I use the metaphor of a, the stock market. So you can, have, you can have days where it drops, the Dow drops 300 points. And it's like, maybe I want to get, get out of the market. But then if you look at the market over 50 years, you see this clear upward trend and a bunch of jags up and down day to day, but always the upward trend. And so, so by recognizing these daily victories, and it, it could just be, I didn't hit my numbers today, but I kept fighting. I kept trying. That's a victory right there. It's a huge victory right there. And what happens then is they start to accumulate. 
And I, and I use this expression and I, I ask my athletes to do this. Say, say to yourself after workout, money in the bank, baby, money in the bank. And baby, if you don't say baby, it doesn't work. Um, but um, but you, and you can use whatever terms you want. You could just say, let's celebrate the day or the workout. But it's really start taking a moment and recognizing you just took another step toward your goals. And that goes into your system and makes it easier and easier. Now, it's still hard, but it's easier and easier because you're getting feedback that all your efforts are being rewarded with improvement. So celebrating those those daily victories is so important psychologically. Yeah, I mean, one thing I often say to athletes on race day, you know, sometimes they think of races are important. They're incredibly important for sure, especially for pro athletes. But, you know, if you reframe the perspective and you think, okay, well, today and this race is a great opportunity for me to just celebrate my fitness and celebrate our sport, that can also, I think, alter one's perspective of, of the day. And again, alleviate some of that that dread of not performing up to one's expectations or, or other pe- even worse, other people's expectations. So, uh, yeah, I, I love that. And then just doing that all the time, too, with the victories like you're talking about. Good. You guys ready for the last one? The secret sauce? Yes. I, mean, I, hope, I hope I don't let people down because it's because it maybe not as, as, as awe-inspiring <laughs> or life-changing as, uh, as, as you might think. But it was for me. So um, it was back in December. And I was having a hard work and I think I was doing like three, three by 15 minute at 85% of FTP. So, you know, not super painful, but, but each interval is hard for sure. And after the first interval, um, not after, but the last five minutes of the first interval, like my numbers are going down, like I'm just getting tired. And I had this epiphany and I said, wait a minute, I choose to push my limits. I choose to push my limits. And all of a sudden my power went up. And I did that the next interval and the next interval. I've been using it ever since running, biking, swimming. Anytime it gets hard, I tell myself, and in the race, I did a race last Sunday and um, on the, at the end of the run during the bike, I was constantly saying this to myself, I choose to push my limits. So guys, that's the secret sauce. And let me explain why it's the secret sauce. Because what happens is that again, toward the end of a race or when it's hard, it could be early, um, you are, your body is, is telling you to stop. And by saying, I choose to push my limits, couple of benefits. First of all, you are taking control of the scenario. Your mind is taking control of the scenario. Look, this is hard, yeah, but I'm choosing to do this. So I'm, I'm taking control. And again, like I said before, when we're out of control, that's a state that we do not like. So it, it, it reasserts control over the situation. And by choosing it, that means we are making a deliberate decision to continue to push hard to the finish. When my body's saying, come on, you can slow down now, it's not that big a deal. That has tremendous value. Also, as I, as I touched on earlier, that assertion of control sends a signal to your body that we're not gonna die, we're okay. And then, so the body's gonna stop resisting. And what I notice also, when I say this to myself, my body relaxes. Because it's like, because it starts tightening up at the, toward the end, like a part, any, any part of, the, of, a, of a workout or a race that's hard. And because it's protecting itself from what it perceives is going to happen, which is we're going to die. And so by, by basically communicating, I've got this, I'm making this choice, which means we're capable of doing this. Then the body goes, oh, whew, I don't need to tighten up and protect myself to survive. Keep going. And so this has become like a, a multi-moment mantra in all my workouts and on race day. And and I, I sort of broaden it a little bit where I go, I choose to dot, dot, dot. Because you might not like the, the, the part about pushing your limits. You might say, you know, crushing it or doing my best or achieve my goals or whatever it might be. But But the key thing is making the choice. Oh, yeah. One other thing I forgot to mention is that little neuroanatomy lesson. So this is a part of the primitive brain called the amygdala. And it's basically the filter from which all our experiences are filtered through. Its singular purpose is to ensure our survival. So in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago, if we're faced with a rival tribesman with a really big club, we perceive this and instantaneously our survival instincts trigger. Instantaneously, we experience fight or flight and instantaneously we, we react. 
because we don't have time to stop in that situation and go, huh, there's this really big cave guy with a club who's going to pummel me to death. What are my options here? In those eight or 10 seconds of thinking that, we're dead. So when we, when I say this, I choose to push my limits. I'm, I'm redirecting those signals away from my amygdala, up to my prefrontal cortex, using my executive functioning. And that reduces the, the power of the amygdala, of our primitive brain to, to determine our, our behavior. So, so such a simple thing as saying, I choose to push my limits has an amazing impact on us in so many ways, psychologically, emotionally, physiologically. Because again, also emotionally, when you say I choose to push my limits, you are communicating to your, to your emotional brain that there's nothing to be afraid of. And so you don't experience fear and you don't experience flight. And when I talk about flight, I don't mean literally just like stopping in the, in the middle of the run, taking off your shoes and walking away. The way we flee when things get hard is we slow down because that because we are getting away from the perceived threat, however unrealistic it is. So simple, simple thing. I personally have found a profound impact on my ability to continue to push myself. Yeah, I, I really think that it's the best statement. But when we think about positive self-talk, it, it's kind of the perfect statement because it's it's kind of beautiful like in the moment it's it's one of the best statements and and it's telling your body how to respond in that micro moment but it's almost like a good just life philosophy you know like i choose to push my limits i choose to to get better um so on many levels it is a great powerful statement and and it also doesn't leave any room for you to kind of rationalize in the moment, any excuses to uh, kind of like you talk about, to uh, to slow down, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I think it it can be transformative for people for sure. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's good to to cap off this podcast with with that. I think it's a tidy way to kind of tie everything together. Um, but yeah, I think that this was this was a good one. This was a great podcast, and we definitely appreciate you you coming on and you know we uh we covered a lot of i think actionable items and and then left it a little bit on a philosophical point when we think about you know what why you're in the sports like well I, i'm choosing to, to push my limits every day and and it's okay to be ambitious and, and it's okay to you know want want to get better and and push your limits there's nothing wrong with that but uh, yeah. yeah. And anyway, I guess one one last thing, just to sort of wrap things up again, to emphasize the point that that I want you to treat mental training the same way you treat your your conditioning. Yep. Swim, bike, and run <laughs> training. You have to do it consistently. It has to be structured. It has to be a regular thing, in in order to gain the benefits. So so with all these different hacks that I've talked about, they're not super complicated. They don't take a lot of time. You can do them while you're training, and while you're racing. So use them on a regular basis until the point where it just becomes automatic. Where, where at first, yeah, you have to think, oh, yeah, I need to smile here. And you sometimes forget. But the more you do it, the more it becomes ingrained until you're, you know, late in a race and you're, work, you're super tired and it's hard and you smile. Or you just automatically say, I choose to push my limits. And that makes the difference. And it just becomes automatic. It just becomes what you do. Exactly. Definitely practice that mantra. Ch try it out and let us know how, how it works for you. Uh, you know, all listeners out there, but uh, well, again, thanks for coming on and how can people, you know, read your articles or potentially get, get in touch with you? Yeah. So of course I've got a website, drjimtaylor.com, drjimtaylor.com, about 95% of everything I've ever written. Um, I have on my website, um, I have a, I have a triathlon blog um, where I, I usually post usually once a week or so. And um, I'm also of course on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, where I also publish all my articles. And I've got a contact page if you have questions, comments. Um, I love hearing from people. Um, hopefully you've gotten the sense that I have a tremendous passion for um, for this sport. And I just love talking about it, clearly. And um, and um, and just sharing ideas and hearing what other people have to say and other people's perspectives and experiences. So um, if, if you have questions, comments, um, don't hesitate to reach out to me. 
Great. Well, thanks, Jim. We appreciate it. And if anybody would like to reach out to Derek or me, feel free to email us at info at or uh, head over to www.workingtriathlete.com. Thanks, guys. Bye.